This episode of The Murder of My Family is brought to you by Madison Reed. Madison Reed has hair color that is gorgeous, salon quality, multidimensional, ammonia-free, and delivered to your door for less than $25. Visit madison-reed.com for 10% off plus free shipping on your first hair color kit with promo code FAMILY. That's code FAMILY. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderinmyfamily. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Please allow me a moment to share some important information before we get started. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show with a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include such things as thank you cards, stickers, and early commercial free access to new episodes, plus bonus material not heard in regular episodes. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Elizabeth Flat. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate and keep the podcast going and improving. One last note I'd like to invite you to check out and subscribe to my YouTube channel, where I discuss various projects I'm working on as well as what's new in the true crime world and I sometimes hold impromptu chats with subscribers. You can find me on YouTube by searching for my channel, which is True Crime Guy. If you're a YouTube user, I hope you'll give it a try. Thank you, and now on with the show. I don't usually start an episode by setting up the case I'm about to talk about, but this episode is a little different, so I wanted to give you a backstory of one of the most fascinating murder cases I know of, one that I've spent a decade digging into. About 10 years ago, while I was working on the Zodiac Killer case, I accidentally stumbled across a creepy murder case that would capture my attention from that point on. The case of Lindy Sue Beekler. In case you're not aware, the Zodiac Killer was an attention-seeking serial killer that operated in the San Francisco Bay Area from 1968 to 1974. He killed five people and often wrote to newspapers bragging about his crimes and taunting police. After 1969, he seemed to shift from murders to primarily letter writing, frequently writing to San Francisco Bay Area newspapers, urging them to print his letters, and sometimes threatening that if they didn't, he would kill more people. The Zodiac last met a letter in the San Francisco Bay Area in July of 1974, and after that, he vanished. I always wondered if the Zodiac moved away and continued his letter writing campaign elsewhere, perhaps not calling himself Zodiac. 
I scoured the country for cases occurring after mid-1974 that included letter writers claiming responsibility for crimes, and there weren't too many cases like that. Then I found Lindy Sue Beekler's case in Pennsylvania, and when I read the content of the letter mailed from someone claiming to be her killer, I was captivated by the striking similarities in tone, language, misspellings, and the overall need to see their letter published in the newspaper. I eventually concluded that it might be hard or impossible to prove that the letter writer in Lindy's case was the Zodiac, but nonetheless, I was captivated by Lindy's case and soon began researching it and writing about it. The late true crime author Michelle McNamara and I used to correspond about cases that we were both interested in, usually cold or unsolved ones that most people hadn't heard of. One email from her read, Ooh, tell me more about Lindy's case. After I told Michelle what I knew and had collected about Lindy's case, she too was intrigued by the Beekler case and asked me if I wanted to write a guest blog article about Lindy's case for her true crime blog, truecrimediary.com, which is a great site, by the way, and is at the time of this recording is still online. For a true crime enthusiast like Michelle McNamara to be interested in the case, that told me just how interesting the case was, and I wanted to help shed more light on the case. I had been in contact with Lindy's brother Michael since early on, and we talked over the phone and emailed each other. Eventually, Michael, who lives overseas, trusted me enough to ship his entire collection of case-related materials that he had collected about his sister's case over the years, so that I could make copies of it. Once I went through it all, I was even more interested and puzzled by Lindy's case. That's the backstory of how I came to be aware of Lindy's case, and here are the details of it. In December 1975, 19-year-old newlywed Lindy Sue Beekler had her entire future ahead of her. She had recently married her husband, Phil, and was excited to see what the future had in store. The young couple settled into apartment 104A on Kloss Avenue in the Spring Manor Apartments in Manor Township, located in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Amish country, known for its quiet, safe, and peaceful neighborhoods. Lindy had taken a job at a local floral shop while Phil attended Millersville State College and also worked at a local Hertz car rental agency. The couple's schedules frequently clashed, often leaving Lindy home alone in her apartment. To make matters worse, for weeks, Lindy felt that someone had been watching her through the sliding glass door in the rear of the apartment. She mentioned it to multiple family members, and she didn't like being alone in the apartment. But Lindy tried to get over her fears and was determined to do what she needed to do in order to make a good home for herself and Phil. Still, the fact that the days were getting shorter and it was getting dark earlier made the pretty dark-haired 19-year-old wife uneasy. On Friday, December 5th, Lindy worked her shift at the floral shop while Phil worked his shift at the car rental agency. After work, Lindy shopped for groceries and then returned to her apartment arriving at around 7.15 p.m. Lindy carried her groceries in, impossibly made a second trip to the car to get more. A short time later, Lindy's Uncle Merle and Aunt Celeste decided to go over to Lindy's apartment to keep her company, and they arrived there around 8.40 p.m. They let themselves in the unlocked door calling for Lindy, but they didn't get an answer. As they walked through the apartment, they were horrified by what they saw. Lindy was lying face up on the floor between the living room and the breakfast nook in the kitchen. She had a knife sticking out of the back of her neck, and there was blood all over the horrified pair phoned police. When police arrived, they found Lindy's aunt and uncle devastated and shaken by their discovery. Police went into the apartment and examined the crime scene and called in detectives. 
Lindy's husband was contacted at the Hertz office and was notified of the tragic news of his wife's murder. Investigators established that there was no robbery, and although Lindy was fully dressed, they suspect she was the victim of a sexual attack. The only sign of a struggle was a lamp that was knocked over. This made police wonder if Lindy knew her killer and had let him in. Perhaps he had even helped Lindy carry her groceries in. It was also possible that the killer followed behind Lindy as she carried her groceries in and surprised her. Detectives also determined that the knife embedded in Lindy's neck, an 8-inch butcher knife, belonged to her and normally hung from the wall in the Beekler kitchen. They would later verify that a second knife was brought to the crime scene by Lindy's killer and used in the attack. That knife wasn't found. There was evidence collected from the crime scene that police think was connected to the killer. And decades later, with the onset of DNA technology, police knew that it one day might lead to Lindy's killer. The DNA was last examined 10 years ago, but a lot has changed in the world of DNA since then. And perhaps new techniques, including genetic genealogy, will one day help to solve Lindy's case. But it remains to be seen how much of the DNA sample is left and what the quality of it is. An autopsy performed on Lindy's body revealed that the time of death was between 6 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. Since Lindy arrived at her home after 7 p.m., it's likely that she was attacked very soon after entering her apartment. The autopsy also revealed that Lindy had a total of 19 stab wounds, 3 to the neck, 11 to the chest and upper abdomen, and 5 to the back. Her carotid artery, heart, and lung were all nicked, and Lindy died from massive bleeding. She never had a chance. The autopsy confirmed that Lindy had not been raped. Lindy's young husband, her mother, and the rest of her family were left to deal with the fallout of Lindy's brutal and shocking murder. Lindy was laid to rest in Bromes Chapel Cemetery in Lancaster County. Police continued their investigation into Lindy's murder, continuing to question Lindy's neighbors, friends, and co-workers. They wanted to rule out those closest to her. After learning that Lindy felt she was being watched or perhaps stalked leading up to her murder, Police investigated that angle as well, but they weren't able to make any determinations as to whether she had been stalked or not. In mid-January of 1976, a month after Lindy's murder, police caught a break. An 18-year-old man named Mark Dominic Capalupo was arrested in connection with four attacks on area women. He was caught while attempting an attack on a fifth woman. The attacks had taken place between December and January. In the attacks, Capalupo approached the women threatening them with a screwdriver. He then bound them and sexually assaulted them. In at least one instance, he tried to run one of them down with his car. Police questioned him about a possible connection to Lindy's case, but they apparently ruled the 18-year-old as being involved in Lindy's murder. He was, however, sentenced to prison for his crimes against the other Lancaster County women. Only a year later, Capalupu was shot to death as he attempted to escape from prison. Lindy's case cooled off after the question of Capalupo. Although police and Lindy's family had people in mind that they suspected may have killed Lindy. As the one-year anniversary of Lindy's murder approached, Lindy's case would once again make headlines in the Lancaster area. Visitors to Lindy's grave discovered that her headstone had been vandalized. Someone had made several nicks to it, and it was splashed with red paint. This cruel and shocking vandalism reignited Lindy's case as police wondered if the vandalism was done by Lindy's killer to mark the one-year anniversary of the murder. Weeks later, the case would take another strange turn when an anonymous letter was mailed to the Manor Township Chief of Police, Donald Sheeler. The letter was a mix of hand-printed and cursive writing filled with spelling errors. It was written in two parts, one part from somebody that claimed to be the actual killer and the second part from someone that claimed to be a friend of the killer, a Janice Crumb. 
Police believe that the same person wrote both parts of the letter. The letter read as follows. Hi, Sheeler. Just eat your heart up knowing that you haven't caught me yet. Still around. Lindy's marker on her grave just turned me on like she did. And the way she looked all bloody. Like the paint on her marker. The scratch and nick marks represent the knife stabs. Count them. You wondered if the guy at the gas station in Mountville were related to the Beekler's murder. Forget it, man. No way. I'll tell you what, cheap pig. You print this letter in the paper along with a picture in Friday night's Lancaster paper and Saturday morning's paper, and I might confess when I get off my trip. You see, the world owes me a living. Maybe I give you a few hints who I am. Got busted once for drugs a few years back. Live in West End of Lancaster suburbs. I am five foot ten tall, two hundred five pounds, fat and beautiful, and capable of killing again without knowing it. December fifth, nineteen seventy five, was under the stupor of amphetamines like right now. Well educated man in the community, single, good job, but God, please, Chief, help me. I am losing my mind. Help me before I kill again. The headaches kill me every time. It aches. The drugs only calm it temporarily. Will God forgive me? Please print this chief in the paper so I know you got it. Then I write you again. God, I need a priest. What have I done? Help me, please. P.S. Chief Sheeler. My friend has confessed to the killing of Lindy Sue Beekler. As God is my witness, do as he asks. Print this letter on the front page. I am not aware of his intentions right now, but contemplating murder is not his intentions. He is mentally sick. When the letter appears, then he will turn himself in. He described the relationship he and Lindy had before he killed her. He only realizes it now when you're on drugs. You're not responsible for your actions. Please, he is asleep now. That's why I finished the letter. All I can tell you, my friend frequents Manor Shopping Center in the evenings and the fields around it, mostly weeknights. He will contact you very soon, and oh, when he does, please bring a Catholic priest to the police station, Janice Crum. The letter writer mentioned the name Janice Crum in the sinister mailing, and police searched for a woman by that name who might be connected to Lindy's case or her killer, but they failed to find one. I should point out that a woman by that name does indeed live in Lancaster County, and I hope that police question her at some point in the case in case she might be able to provide more insight into the writer's message. The question is, did Lindy's killer send the letter, or was the letter simply a cruel prank? The letter writer wanted it published in the local paper, but police decided against it, and they never heard from the letter's author again. Many people, myself included, feel that the police very possibly missed a golden opportunity to open up a line of communication with the writer, which may have eventually led to clues resulting in the identity of the writer being learned. Years later, a police lab in charge of the evidence in Lindy's case lost the original letter sent by the unknown author. It's not known whether or not police were able to get any prints or other physical evidence from the letter before it was lost. The case officially went cold and remains so today. It seems as if frustration and mischances in Lindy's case were around every turn. Along the way, Lindy's mother passed away, never finding justice for her daughter. 
Lindy's brother Mike started a now-defunct website to draw attention to Lindy's story, and even erected a billboard asking for help or tips. Over 40 years later, there's hope that Lindy's case will be solved using new methods related to DNA and genetic genealogy, the same methods that are helping solve so many cases in 2018. Earlier this year, Lancaster counties were able to use genetic genealogy to solve another infamous cold case in their county, the 1992 murder of Christy Merrick. Seeing firsthand that this method works will hopefully encourage detectives to use it for Lindy's case as well. I've been planning to do a podcast episode about Lindy's case for over two years, and I felt that a conversation with Lindy's brother Mike Little would be a crucial part of any episode about Lindy. But the challenge has always been that Michael and I live on two different continents, Mike in Asia and myself in North America. Our schedules finally lined up recently, and the result was a very impromptu discussion. As such, the audio and sound in the interview with Mike may not be top quality, so my apologies in advance. But again, I felt it was important to have Mike on to represent Lindy's family. That discussion is next after these words from our sponsors. Thanks, Mike, for joining me to discuss your sister Lindy's case with us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. And you and I have been corresponding for a long time about Lindy's case, and I'm very happy to get it documented on a podcast because it's it's such an old and fascinating case that shouldn't be forgotten about. And when we see cases from the mid-70s, they're, they're so old that a lot of people don't hear about them. So this is uh, one that's always stuck with me, and I'm, I'm glad we're able to talk about it. Yeah, me too. I think it's uh, – you bring that up. It's like I, I'm almost – you know, forgetting stuff now. It's been so long. So I, even talking, talking uh, to people about it helps, you know, refresh my, my own memory. And how old were you when, when Lindy was murdered in 1975? I was only, so I was born 68. So I was, I was pushing seven or eight years old. And Lindy was 19. So she's obviously considerably older than you. Were you old enough that you had pretty good memories, even though you were young at Lindy at that time period? Yeah, I, I think just from a standpoint of a young, you know, eight-year-old boy, I, I think I have pretty good memories of her. And obviously, at nineteen, that, that's you know nowadays that's pretty uh, pretty young to get married. But she, uh, you know, married and she was out of the house. She was my stepsister, but I think you know going back, I I I, I have pretty good recall of that it happened. I don't have, I don't have, you know, the exact timeline, but I remember, I remember, you know, my mom, I think my, my dad and my grandmother were actually at, at Park City shopping for Christmas or shopping for something. And then my mom got a phone call, I think from my uncle Merle or my aunt Celeste. So my aunt Celeste found her. They, um, they were, <clears throat> they were going to a basketball game. So they, I, I don't think that it was a scheduled drop by, but my, my cousin had a basketball game. And so uncle Merle, aunt Celeste just, Thought they'd stop by and invite Lindy, and then Uncle Moore was he had MS and couldn't he couldn't walk up, up, upstairs, and so and so my aunt Celeste walked in and found that woman. And it, you know, as a kid, I'm sure that was shocking to you and and the rest of your family. Could you comprehend it at that age? What had happened? No, I no, I don't. I I, I didn't, and it was just um, it was strange, I guess, at least from that, that standpoint of, a, of that, because I think that, that year out, we also lost my mom's father. Um, so, you know, death and that kind of stuff was kind of, you know, you know, you know how it is when you're a young guy, you just kind of, 
can absorb some of that stuff. Even though Lindy was older than you, were you guys pretty close despite the age difference? I don't know. I, I just, I, I, and you guys basically a typical brother sister kind of relationship. So she was from my father. Lindy was my father's daughter from a previous marriage. And so she didn't, didn't live with us, but she was always present. She was always there. I never, at that, at, at that age, you know, I you know, ask questions of where Lindy lives. I kind of play. I think she was living with her, with her, with her mom, I think at the time, you know, throughout high school, off and on. Again, you know, she, you know, Christmases, birthdays, uh, camping trips, uh, babysitting me, you know, just a regular, I think it's just like a, like a regular sister or brother relationship. And she was a young bride, a newlywed, I guess, when at the time of her death, she had started her life with her husband, Phil. How long yeah. was she married when, at the time she was murdered? Do you know offhand? But it was, I think it was months. I mean, I, I think it was less than a year or just maybe over a year, but it was not very long. So she must have got married when she was 18. And, and you mentioned earlier being 19 is, is so young. She had, you know, a whole life that that she missed out on. You know, what kind of plans did she have? Do you know uh, from your memories or from talking with your family what she hoped to do with her life? I don't. I think um, I, just from my vantage point now, you know, I think she was, um, I don't know, I, this maybe might be off, but she really seemed like, like, a, like a free spirit. It's, it was the 70s. You know, I think that's, that, that's kind of, I think she's wanting to get married. I have a family. I'm, I'm, I each imagine she's probably head over heels in love with her husband. And I guess even if it's secondhand information from memories that your family has shared with you and stuff, what kind of person was Lindy? What are some of the family memories of her? Yeah, that's a hard one because you know, dad, my dad's passed, and my mom's my mom's in her eighties. That's that we just sit around talking about Lindy every day. But I think that I think that she was had a, a strong group of friends, loyal. I think she had a good work ethic. She always had a job. And I think just that, you know, at 19, you're still probably still trying to figure out your way through life still. So she's probably still developing her character and her personality. And I still trying to figure things out for herself. A lot of what you know about Lindy's case is stuff that you've discovered over the years and sort of did your own research to get you to what you know about it. You know, let's go back to the time leading up to Lindy's death based on what you know. You know, there were times when she was alone at home by herself, and she told people that she felt as if she was being watched, yeah. and she yeah. was uneasy yeah. about that. What can you tell us about that uneasiness that she was feeling or what she shared with people? Other than, you know, whether it was through just open reporting in the media or what she might have told my family or her friends that that she felt that she was being, not being stalked, but definitely being looked at. Uh, there was one time, and I'm not sure what when it was, but Lindy was at the house with over on Mundale Road, um, where, we, where we lived, and uh, my sister and I were there, and Lindy and her boyfriend were there. They might have been killed, might have been, might have been married, and there was like a uh, a crash, like a noise from upstairs, and it turned out to be a mirror. A mirror fell over, and it was like really strange, but it really freaked Lindy out. And I think that was still around, around the time that she thought that someone, I think she made feel good for the whole entire house. She made feel good for the whole entire house because I think that was the period of time that she thought that she was being, uh, you know, observed or stalked or something. And do you have any idea what length of time she was feeling that uneasiness for or possible stalking? I, yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't I don't know how long it was. But it was definitely that, 
she just what either I read or in, that she had lunch with one of her friends and she mentioned it. And you can imagine this is probably like a benign conversation where she'd bring it up. It didn't mean anything to her necessarily, but it was something that was going on in her life that she felt that she was being being looked at. And then maybe after the fact, the police questioned her friends and, and one of them mentioned I think that. so. Yeah. 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 That's probably what came out. And you also mentioned a little bit earlier that, unfortunately, it was family members of yours that actually found her. How tough was this on your family at the time? How devastating was this for them? Well, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's horrific. You know, my dad, my dad was, you know, a tough guy. And, you know, from what my mom told me that night, he was, the cops had to, had, had, had to restrain him. And he was, he was, he got violent. He was very upset. He was very angry. And to the point where they were like, <laughs> put him in handcuffs. So like he was, he was, um, uh, you know, he, he got to the point where he was, he was very, very physical with the police. But then it just kind of, I don't know, just kind of moved on. I don't know. It just kind of, he, never, he never talked about it necessarily. It was just from that, from, from that generation. And maybe he felt like there wasn't much that he could do, and he just tried to deal with it and bury it. Yeah, I think that's probably the, the approach. And I, I have a daughter. I can't even, my daughter's, my daughter's 18. I, I can't even, even kind of, kind of hop, comprehend that. And it wasn't like she was in a, in a car accident. I mean, she was slaughtered. She was butchered. So it was a very violent uh, act. I'm trying to think what my mom said, whether my dad actually walked in and saw her. I, I think he might have. I know he I know he had to see her at the morgue, but I'm not sure if uh, he actually walked into the apartment. Uh, but yeah, my, so my, aunt, my aunt Celeste you know, walked in and saw the home. Yeah. Who knows how long she had been lying there. It could have been minutes. I mean, literally, it wasn't, it wasn't um, like she had been there for hours or, 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 or a day or half a day. It literally, it was a fresh collection. I can't even imagine how your dad, if he had to deal with that, or Celeste and had to deal with that, you know, just finding her. So I assume they called police right away and the police came out and handled it like they would handle a typical murder scene. And then they, they start looking at people closest to Lindy and then working their way out from there. I assume that included looking at her husband, Phil, at the time, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just the, when you watch any kind of crime show drama, that's the, if, <laughs> if, it's, a, if it's a spouse murder, that's the first place they go, typically. But Phil's at work. He was at work. And and this case has been bumped around all over the county between, between you know, ta- township police, between state police, between the DA. Uh, I think now it's back with, with Manor Township in terms of, I guess, jurisdiction kind of who like what oversees the case. But I, I guess the rub that I, that either I've been told or uh, whether it's hearsay or just the impressions I have developed over the years is that we're talking about 1975, you know, local police. This is, this is not like, you know, CSI or FBI or high technology guys are coming in to secure a crime scene. So you can imagine that you know, here's a here are local patrol cops out, you know, patrolling, you know, doing their regular job, and then they get they walk into a murder scene. And so maybe the 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 crime scene itself wasn't really taken care of the way you expect it to be taken care of. You know, I guess like a like a modern sense, I guess, of what you expect. And it seems like there weren't any clear suspects or motives in the case. 
and it seemed to go cold, but then it sort of gained steam again a year later when her headstone was vandalized. You know, a taunting letter was mailed claiming responsibility for the murder. Do you remember how that affected your family? Did that kind of rekindle any kind of uh, emotions or reactions from them when they heard about that stuff? I had no collection of that. I'm not sure if they were just protecting me or just it wasn't just something that was talked about. I don't, I have maybe a vague recollection of the tombstone being defaced. I don't remember the letter. I don't think I even saw the letter until, um, you know, years later in the paper. So I, I don't necessarily think, I think it went cold immediately. I think that, that they were really like still investigating. Again, like, kind of going back to what I said earlier about, about forgetting things. Like there are so many people that popped up as potential suspects or you know, potential murderers, but I've forgotten. It was like, um, there's so many people, people from work, family. Definitely, I think uh, maybe that, without me going on a tangent, that definitely is when I got a little older um, and I started to pursue this, you know, especially after my dad died, I felt like I had to kind of carry it a little bit. That maybe some, maybe I didn't handle things the right way with, with, with the DA. <laughs> they got upset at me, but no, it wasn't like basically uh, animosity, but it's just kind of like, they don't share a lot of information, and I get that, and I, I totally get that because it's an active investigation. But then you, you can internalize that in terms of that they're not doing their job because they they're not telling you anything. Yeah, so it's like a catch twenty two of they're keeping stuff secret, but they're not giving yeah, you anything yeah. to let you know what's going on. Yeah, and and later on, when when you started looking into the case as an adult, what did you think of? the letter in the case not being published, did you think that was a missed opportunity by police to to uh, talk, to open some dialogue with the, the person, and maybe that would would have led to clues that might have caught him? If you look at it in that light, that this person is basically not, not necessarily crying out, but taunting the police, wanting to engage them, uh, to be, maybe play a little cat and mouse. And that goes down this, you know, a whole other pathway that this person... I don't know. So, so again, at least from like from 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 the FBI standpoint, in terms of some of their their uh, analysis, is that the way that she was killed showed a I won't say a crime of passion, but that it was so the person was angry, the person was was enraged, which showed maybe a familiarity with Lindy, that maybe uh, there had been some rejection. That's that's you know one possible scenario here. So the letter would go down a different path where this person was psychotic and, you know, like maybe had done this before or vice just a, a random, you know, key to passion kind of uh, event so that there was no forced entry. It was, it was her, a, a knife from the kitchen. So it, it, it wasn't like someone broke in and, and there was, there was a struggle, actually, but there was not a struggle at first. So this opportunity, yeah, I think maybe they, they waited a little bit too long. I know the FBI did the handwriting analysis. They came up with some kind of, uh, they came up with that this person might have had some sexual identity issues. That's probably, that's the right, right term, I guess. I'm not sure how they pulled that out because of the way the guy wrote the letter about, um, um, big and I'm beautiful or something like that. I'm not sure if you, if you have a letter in front of you, but there was like some kind of sexual identity undertones to it, which we were trying to, I guess, you know, led to some kind of analysis by the FBI that that, that person uh, was unbalanced in some way. And, you know, to add insult to injury, they also lost the letter as well. That's got to be uh, frustrating, too. 
Well, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying previously in terms of that. It, it, it honestly, like, again, from a family standpoint, you can you can say, like, what's going on here? You know, is, is there a cover-up here? What, what, what's going on? You know, and I think that, that although I don't, think there, I don't think there is a cover-up, but again, that with that there was there was some bungling. There was some things that were were not done properly, and and I think that that made people maybe also cover the tracks. But yeah, it's just hence hence no answers. You know, they they vice trying to apologize or explain. They they go silent. Let's move forward to more recent years. You eventually teamed up with Vince Myrak, who was the brother yeah. of another Lancaster County murder victim, Christy Myrak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You both started a website and constructed billboards about the murders of your sisters, which is what led to me finding out about Lindy's case in the first place. When did you yeah. guys team up to do that, and what was that experience like having to take on that kind of project? So let's see, timeline, it's probably 2008, 2010, somewhere in there, uh, maybe a little later. But um, and Vince and I had met in Lancaster when I was home. He really... You know, in terms of having a passion for this, I mean, he's probably you know this of the same ilk I am, trying to you know carry the carry the the mantle for his sister's case. So he was more tech savvy, and I think he really just you know he did the website, and then he and I collaborated together on the billboard. I thought the billboard idea was brilliant. I, I loved it. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> so we did it. We did it. I mean, I, I was here in Singapore, so. Um, Hired a, an ad agency in, in in Lancaster. Found a great spot. I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better spot right there on Route 30. And I think it was up for 30 days. And I think the ad agency actually kept it up 10 more days for free. <laughs> we got we got local local news attention. You know, all the the the, the big three TV stations, radio, and then print. Uh, they so it got it, it worked, you know. It got it, it got uh, got the attention. It accomplished but the I'm mission like, that you wanted it well, to do. You wanted to reach people. Well, it was pretty blunt. It said, "Do you know who murdered us?" <laughs> it was pretty. It was pretty in your face. It wasn't meant to piss people off. It was obviously meant to uh, you know keep Lindy and I think that might have been Lindy's so trying to like it was a track of time. Might have been the thirtieth year anniversary of her murder when we did that. Someone you know, 35 years, who knows? Do you know if did it lead to fresh tips? Did police get calls about it? Uh, any new information? I don't know. I, we did, you know, I, we did have contact with the DA's office, and I think we did add the the crime tip, you know, hotline number to the billboard. Uh, I think, even, you know, I think even I think Vince actually we actually put the website on the billboard also. So I think we did get a lot of hits on the website, but more probably on the lines of. I knew Lindy, uh, I knew Christy, um, I might have been one or two tips on that that we might have passed on, but nothing else, nothing solid. And it wasn't until 2018 that Christy's case was finally solved using DNA, which is obviously great news for her family. How much did that arrest boost your confidence that Lindy's murder might be solved one day? So they have DNA, and we've always been told that they have good they have, they have good DNA, so it's just a matter of of you know, matching the DNA. I think and also you need to talk to talk to Vince, but I think through Christie's case, it was they are able to do the technology now. They're able to do um, the DNA testing the family, 
So they were able to, to you know, to, to scope in on, um, on Christie's murder. Um, but with, with Lindy's case, um, again, she fought for her life and they have, you know, they have DNA. Um, but I, it's just, it's hard to imagine, you know, what, over 46 years, 45 years, you'd imagine if this guy um, had murdered before or would have been a criminal that his DNA was in the system. So, you know, probably certainly that, that the, the police have done all the DNA testing with the database, uh, national or local, local databases, and yet nothing is coming up, which, you know, makes it tough. You know, it makes it tough that maybe that this, either the person's dead or didn't have a criminal past. So there's no, there's no DNA that necessarily cross, cross section. But I had this, you know, some brief, brief emails with the DA and that they're going to look at using this technology to see if they can, you know, help out with Wendy's case. So this is after they arrested uh, the guy in Christie's case yeah. that you've had contact with the DA since then. Yeah. So I, I, I just sent um, the district attorney a, a congratulatory email to say, you know, kind of gives us kind of some kind of level of hope that maybe we can get Wendy's murder solved and with, with this technology. And I totally get it. I totally get it. This is a 45 year old, you know, mystery or murder. Um, you got budgets, you got political pressure, you got case loads, you got a bunch of other dynamics that are in play here. So definitely, um, it, it did, it did. First of all, I was, I was ecstatic for, for Vince and his family. It's, it's like, like I, was, I was happy. I was elated that they got, that they have, they have some, some semblance of peace now of knowing what happened. And, and I was, I was pleased that the DA came back and said, we will look into using this technology to see if we can further, further Lindy's case. I'm not sure where it stands. I don't, I, I just try to keep touch with the DA, you know, twice a year, every quarter, just, you know, but definitely after the, after Chrissy's case was solved, I definitely reached out. So, and I, again, I, 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 I didn't handle things well years ago with the DA. So I, I need to, you know, I, I can nurture that relationship. Well, I hope that they use the same kind of techniques they did to catch Christie's killer to, to find Lindy's killer. And I hope that's news that your family gets and that's hopefully coming soon. I think beyond the regular police detective work that's been done for the past 40 years, you know, they've done the FBI profiling. The handwriting analysis, you know, the DNA. They did um, the the VSAC Society in Philadelphia. I mean, I, I think that they have done everything they, they can do. And I guess maybe this 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 DNA approach will be. You know, I'm also the last the last last hope you have. But you can only wonder if if this guy is still around. Is he alive? You mentioned, you know, some of your family's passed away and you're on a whole different continent. You know, how's it been living across a sea trying to help keep this case alive? Has that been a challenge for you? Well, the challenge is is that, you know, people, um, you know, people are getting old. Like like I said, my dad's passed. Um, My mom's 82. She has a really good memory. Um really good recall. So that's probably one of the challenges is that the, the tribal knowledge, you know, of people that actually know things, even honestly, detective, uh, Gigi passed away. So the, the lead detective who, who had oversight of this case 
passed away. So, and there have been police officers and detectives throughout the past 40 years that have passed away, um, as well as families. So it's going to come down to the, the knowledge for this will be on paper by someone's you know, personal, personal memory or association. And that's what's good about the DNA, because if that DNA is good enough quality and they can use it the way they solve Christy Myrick's case, then that DNA, no matter how old the person is, even if they're not alive, it'll most likely lead to the right person that did this. So I hope, I hope that that is something that happens and happens sooner rather than later, because you've waited long enough. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I guess I don't even know the process. I'm not, I'm not even sure of like how how Vince was notified, whether they they'll include the family in this process. And I guess that's probably part of the, the anxiety and the excitement that that this thing will this thing can be solved. And I guess that's what's what's always been told to us that this murder can be solved. But I think we're dealing with a sole reliance on DNA or someone confesses. <laughs> Again, it's coming up on almost fifty years. It's at this point. So hopefully it doesn't have too many more anniversaries before we know who did this. So I hope you get that news soon. Yeah. I mean, I think also for, for Phil, um, you know, my mom, I, um, I think that's all that's, that's, that's left. I mean, me and my sister, you know, but you know, Lindy's mom has passed away. You know, my dad's passed. So it's just, um, I'm not sure even in Lancaster, if there's, how many unsolved murders this they are, and I think Christy and Lindy's were probably the most uh, high profile. But it would be it would be fascinating. It would be, it'd be wonderful news if this thing could get to get solved. Well, every day I check the alerts to see if there's anything on her case, and I hope hopefully one of these days soon there is an alert that her case has been solved. Yeah, like, like I mentioned, if it if it does, I don't think we'll, I don't think we'll see it coming. I think for all we know right now is that. They are doing the DNA testing based upon the technology they used to solve Christie's murder, and they are actively pursuing it. Uh, again, from everybody that I've, I've spoken with, that there's a high level of confidence based upon the DNA that they have from Lindy, that if they, if they get the match, that's going to be the guy. Uh, there'll be no questions about it. And I, I don't think we're dealing with a situation where there's you know, two, two people, two murders, but but I think that was brought up maybe throughout the years. But I, at this point, I guess basically hoping hoping against hope. Well, to summarize, I, I really think after all these years that maybe just that you can view that the police have and the DA has exhausted all all avenues. And as technology advances, that we can only hope that maybe that, that technology will solve the case, that we can, we can rely on new technology to find who did this. And then, and then I guess the real thing, like even like when I was when when they solved Christie's murder, then what? You know, then the, so that they do find Lindy's murder, but kind of like we've dealt with this for so many years about how we're going to feel about this in terms of uh, what then a court case, you know, all that stuff that kind of, that kind of goes with it. Is that even if they do find the person, then it's kind of like all right, now what? <laughs> and do you think it will give you any kind of I don't know if closure is the right word, but any kind of sense of justice, if if you find out a name, even if the person's dead, would that help in any way? I think it would. I'm not sure if even, even, even using the words, you know, justice, I know that you hear that term a lot, but I think for me, it'd be closure. It would be, it would be closure. And maybe given 
the remaining family peace of mind. I mean, nothing's going to obviously undo what happened, but to maybe answer the, the question of why. You know, why? Why Why one December night in 1975 did this happen? You know, why? So I guess we put a, um, a face to the murder or a name to the murder that might answer some of those questions of, of why, especially for Phil. You know, I mean, I can imagine from my dad's standpoint of losing a daughter, you know, Phil lost, lost his wife. And hopefully he gets those answers too. I appreciate you joining me to talk about Lindy's case. And uh, again, I wish you all the luck in, in finding out the truth. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad we had a chance to, uh, to talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Murder of My Family. As we wrap up this episode, I'd like to play a preview for a show that I think you'll enjoy called Terror in Old Town. If you're a true crime fan, give it a try. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Terror in Old Town is a weekly podcast covering the Sims family murders in Tallahassee, Florida. On October 22, 1966, Robert, Helen, and their daughter Joy were bound, gagged, and brutally murdered. The story is told with the help of interviews from journalists, the first responder, and a former assistant state's attorney. After 52 years, this case remains unsolved and barely active. Two particular suspects face a mound of evidence, yet remain uncharged. Terror in Old Town is available anywhere you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.